Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are talking about the roles of women in the Civil War and specifically two female spies from the 17th century, Jane Horwood and Lucy Hay. Today's expert, Ted Valance. He's a professor of early modern British political culture at the University of Roehampton. He's the author of four books, including most recently Loyalty, Memory and Public Opinion in England, 1658 to 1727, currently researching the trial and execution of Charles I. We are welcoming Ted Valance to the studio. Thank you for being here. We're very excited to have you here talking about the Civil War and Jane Horwood, and anything else you can enlighten us with, because we're excited to learn. I have to say, it's not a subject that I know a lot about. I know broad brushstrokes, which is good, because I think this is going to be good for us all to ask questions and find out more. So, without further ado, please can you start by offering us the context of the world that Jane Horwood lived in, and tell us about the things that happened on the lead-up to this tumultuous moment in history. Sure. Well, it is very tumultuous, and it is very complicated, but I think if we're trying to do a broad brush exercise, explanation the way to think about the civil wars and and what happens afterwards is as a consequence of the european reformation and that seismic religious change that takes place so the break from rome in england with henry the eighth um the establishment of the church of england and with elizabeth effectively the creation of england's identity as a protestant nation. Now the issue is that for many English Protestants actually it's not Protestant enough. It's a kind of half reformed church. And so that these people that we tend to call Puritans always in tension with the established church. And that has a political dimension to it as well because of course unusually our head of the church is also the head of state. So the queen or the king as in the case of Charles I, is also the head of that church. So that provides a direct connection between religious policy and the political world. And in this period anyway, it's very hard to disentangle those things anyway. We're used to thinking about a separation between people's faith and political world Mm. in the main. That's not the case in this period. It's deeply intertwined, the two things connect together. What happens towards the back end of the reign of Charles's father, James I, and going on into Charles I's reign, is that the situation in Europe in particular really starts to impact upon English public opinion, and it casts a different and more worrying light on religious policy for those English Puritans. What is happening in Europe is that we're entering the period of the conflict known as the Thirty Years' War, And although there's lots and lots of complex causes of that, it's often seen as a struggle between Protestant Europe and Catholic Europe for supremacy. And for many of these English Puritans, it's also an apocalyptic conflict. This is actually a sign of the last days. It is a battle between the forces of Christ and the forces of Antichrist. And the outcome is everything. It is, will the forces of good triumph or will the forces of evil triumph in this conflict? What those Puritans are particularly worried about is the fact that England is standing aside largely from this conflict. James I doesn't want to get involved. 
even though members of his family are actually directly connected to this conflict, his daughter has actually been basically kicked out of her place in Bohemia. Her husband, they've been booted out This is in the opening of the Thirty Years' War. But James is not giving in to pressure to intervene militarily in this because he knows how expensive wars are and how difficult they are to fight. This is the main expense for any modern government. But the problem then is that it looks like England as a Protestant nation is going soft in this conflict with the forces of Antichrist. It makes English Puritans very worried about that. James also reacts to the criticism of his policy. He doesn't like that at all. So he starts to favour churchmen within the Church of England who are less critical of his policy of peace, who are less vocal in their anti-Catholicism. And this process accelerates with Charles. So Charles really favours that faction in the church. This group of churchmen start with the king's support, making real changes in the English church, especially in things like the physical fabric of churches. So after the Reformation, a lot of English churches had lost a lot of the paintings and the imagery, icons, as a result of the process of the Reformation. What William Lord and his hierarchy in the Church of England start to do is bring that back in, in what Lord calls a kind of restoration of the beauty of holiness. Lord is not a Catholic, and neither is the king, but the issue is that these changes look like bringing Catholicism back into many hotter Protestants, as they're also known as those Puritans. And they're getting really worried about this move. The King Charles is also prosecuting those Puritans who are outspoken in their opposition to these policies. So there aren't many of them, but there are three or four leading Puritans who are punished very publicly for printing works critical of the king's religious policy. And again, that makes it look like the king is supporting, if you like, the the agents of Catholicism rather than supporting the true religion. So there's a lot of discontent growing because of religious policy. But what is the real trigger for the civil war is that the king is pursuing these kinds of religious policies, not just in England, but also in his other kingdom of Scotland. And Scotland is a much more Calvinist, much more Protestant, fully reformed, if you like, country than England is. And this leads to a lot more opposition. And the king also has less control over his northern kingdom. He spent less effort, if you like, in terms of maintaining control over Scotland. He's been very focused on his more wealthy, more populous nation. And as a result, what happens is that when the king tries to impose a new prayer book on Scotland, this turns into outright, first of all, rioting and then rebellion, and actually war. What that means is that the king has to recall parliament. He's been ruling without parliament for the decade of the 1630s because he needs money to fight this war. And parliament immediately comes back and starts saying, well, we've got all these grievances. We we want you to answer because you've been doing all these things that we don't approve of, leading to the king dissolving parliament again, trying to fight his Scottish opponents again, actually losing to them. So this is really remarkable. It's the first successful rebellion, certainly over the Tudor and Stuart period, so it's a real blow to royal authority. The king's Scottish opponents are basically able to dictate terms, and the terms mean that the king has to recall Parliament again to basically get money to pay off his Scottish opponents. And this is really that recall of the Parliament that becomes known as the Long Parliament, the thing that sets in train the series of events that then lead to actual civil war breaking out. The historian Conrad Russell is described as a kind of billiard ball effect. So we have to imagine events ricocheting off events in different parts of the British Isles. The fact that the Scots have had a successful rebellion 
is something that is looked on by the opponents of Charles's regime in both England and in Ireland as, okay, well, we can do this as well. But also, for the Irish, it's still a majority Catholic nation, they're very worried about what's happening in Scotland and England because it looks like power is moving into the hands of these hotter Protestants. And they're worried about what that will mean for them as a majority Catholic nation. Is a kind of tougher regime going to come in? Is there going to be an attempt to kind of forcibly convert Catholics? Are the policies that have already been in place that are kind of favouring Protestant settlers going to be accelerated? There's a lot of anxiety there. And that leads to a rebellion in Ireland in 1641. And that really ratchets things up even further because we've got the situation where there's already in England this body of really anxious Protestant opinion that is starting to believe that the king is in cahoots with Catholics. And then we've got a rebellion in this majority Catholic nation threatening Protestants in Ireland, exaggerated reports of massacres of Protestants coming over and fears about an Irish Catholic army being brought over to massacre Protestants in England, it really ratchets up the atmosphere to fever pitch and to a point where the parliamentarian side start to think about, okay, what do we need to do in terms of securing ourselves and securing the nation? So they start to think about that move to war and the move to using violence rather than persuasion or criticism to try and get the king back on track. And so we get to the point in early 1642 where both sides are really moving towards a resort to using force and thinking about that and planning for that. And of course, on the king's side, we should say, there's a similar kind of conspiracy theory developing in the eyes of the king and his advisers, which is that his reign and his authority is under threat from conspiratorial Puritans who really want to destroy monarchy and set up a kind of democratic Calvinist state in its place in his supporters are also kind of moving into this if you like paranoid mindset and as part of that in january of 1642 he comes to the house of commons with soldiers comes into the chamber in a bid to arrest who he sees as his five leading opponents the five members but they've already been tipped off actually by this figure we're going to talk about in a bit later um, lucy hay countess of carlisle so It's a disaster for him because it basically shows his hand. It shows that he wants to deal with his critics by force, but it fails. And so, again, it just ratchets things up. The king leaves London shortly afterwards. It's actually the last time he's in London until his execution in 1649, which is also a huge strategic mistake on his behalf because he basically gives up his capital city, the most populous, wealthy powerful bit of England to his opponents and we then move in towards the civil war proper and that civil war the first civil war lasts for four years parliament emerges victorious from this but the problem is that doesn't resolve the matter because Charles I all the way through the civil war has not agreed negotiating terms been attempts to negotiate at various points through the civil wars and that continues in the post-civil war era So the king is basically a prisoner from 1646 up until his execution in 1649 of different parties. His Scottish opponents, the Covenanters, first of all, he gives himself up to them because he thinks that he'll get better terms with the Scottish Covenanters than with his English opponents. Then a prisoner of Parliament, he then becomes a prisoner of the army, back to Parliament again, back to the army. 
But he's basically a prisoner through all this post-war period with different sides trying to negotiate with him and effectively failing because he's always looking for a better deal. He's always trying to find a way not to negotiate away any of his power or any of his control over the church or over the military or his authority as king overall. Can I ask a question on that? You've just shown, obviously, how multifaceted and complex these events are it's never just one thing it's never just one side against the other is always factions in that and many events leading to this final killing of the king so I'm sitting here thinking wow everything repeats right mm. yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing that's not come before it just changes its look but it's the same stuff over and over again so there's definitely some comparisons with modern day conspiracy theories and factions of religion and extremists within those religions and a lot of paranoia which is mm. really interesting just thinking about what I knew about it coming to the table you've cleared up a couple of things for me in that we often think about Catholic versus Protestant in a nice binary, simple way. But actually, yeah. like you just said, the Protestant faith in itself had m- many different levels to it. Calvinism, Lutheranism, and then everything else. But also, I always thought, again, it's the easy explanation that you have in your head from picking up about these things. I always thought, because Charles always believed in divine rule, that was where his issues came. And you've just started to bring that back into the conversation. So his stubbornness came from this idea that he had divine rule over everything and you know it's also making me compare him to Elizabeth the first who I do know a bit more about Mm. and it just makes me think a pragmatist as a leader who had experienced something growing up she had to survive through these squabbles with people who were extremists or had different ideas on religion and she came out understanding that you had to talk and you had to negotiate and you had to appease and then you've got Charles who a couple of generations later is back to thinking about divine rule and that's what's getting him to hot water. Is that Would you say that's the, the case? Yeah, I mean, character definitely comes into it and I think it's that there's a, even a difference between Charles and his father James in that James is also somebody, you know, he writes treaties about how kings are basically demigods and you know, emphasising their divine authority. But in actual terms, in terms of how he operates politically... He understands that there will be criticism, there will be opposition, and he generally tries to find ways to negotiate and to give opportunities, to give ground for flexibility, all the rest of it. And that's partly a character trait. So James likes showing off how clever he is. He likes discussion and disputation where he can show his control of things. Charles doesn't like this. Charles has got a stutter which only leaves him at his trial, actually, in 1649. So he doesn't like to debate because he struggles with a speech impediment. But it's also something about his sense of his authority, where he thinks that any kind of, maybe this isn't right, Your Highness, is an outright threat or assault on his power. So he gets into trouble with his Scottish subjects because he sees discontent with that Scottish prayer book as a direct assault on his authority. This is his church, this is something that he is promoting this policy and they should just accept it because it is the king's policy and if they don't accept it they're basically rebels and rebels need to be put down, they need to be crushed. So he doesn't have that sense which both his father and, and then his son Charles II have of yes I'm king, yes I'm supposed to be you know, almighty but actually I've got limitations to my power. I'm not like a modern totalitarian ruler where I can just crush any kind of opposition. I have to negotiate. I have to work with powerful groups and elites within my kingdoms. 
it's a little bit like he's not got that political realist element to him, which is another thing that comes through his period of so-called personal rule, is that he spends a lot of money on court entertainments and court art. And this is one thing, he was an incredible collector and patron of the arts. The leading kind of artists of his age are attracted to the court, Rubens, Van Dyck, fantastic artistic culture that comes out of his court. But it's one that's very much about representing the king as everything. And the king and Henrietta Maria, the king and his queen as embodiments of harmony and the people who will restore harmony through their love. There's not a lot of sense of actually things are more complicated than that. Actually, you know, you have to negotiate with people. You have to work through problems. There are institutions to do these things like parliaments, which Charles isn't keen on because they expect to be able to raise grievances with the king and raise issues with his policies. That court culture also kind of reflects somebody who prefers to present their authority, to present their power, rather than to have any you know, debate or questioning of it going on. Mm. Artemisia Gentileschi, uh, that's another one of my favourites. That period where she came over to join her father, he was painting the ceiling at the Queen's Palace in Greenwich. Anyway, I digress onto another heroine. <laughs> and fascinating that he is known as the collector and did do a lot of good in the sense that he was a benefactor, but you're right, it was all about the way it was perceived. This is a great picture. It's really given me the landscape of where we're at. A lot of intrigue already going on, paranoia, factions talking, and I can see how it was a breeding ground for people to be able to sway people by you know saying the right thing at the right time so here we are we're at the point where he's permanently imprisoned one way or another what's going on as far as the different factions and how are they communicating and whether that be overtly or covertly well it's a very complicated picture in terms of the different factions that are at play and I think one thing that's helpful to think about in terms of the women we're going to talk about today as well is that as you've pointed out there aren't these kind of simple binaries of catholic and protestant there are all these different varieties and the same goes in terms of people's political allegiances which are closely connected to their religious identities as well so there, there isn't just one flavor of parliamentarian and somebody who started out supporting parliament in 1642 might not be supporting parliament and its cause by 1647 1648 or even 1649 that's because there's really been a kind of escalation. There were those at the beginning of the Civil War on the Parliament side that hoped they could fight a kind of defensive war that would bring the king almost to his senses. There would be a negotiated peace, there would be a change of who's advising the king, and everything would be settled. And it becomes clear that that's not going to work. And what we get happening is that there's a more aggressive war party that emerges who believe that what they have to do is to win the war outright, basically hold all the cards and get the king to agree to their terms. Now, the problem in all of this is that they get to that point, effectively, and Charles says, yeah, no, I'm still not doing that. You've got to come to my terms. I'm the king still. You have to agree with what I want. There's all these different factions in play. We've got the Scottish Covenanters, as, as the king's opponents are known, but they're also complicated because there are different factions there. There are some who want to be more lenient on the king and want more to meet him. And there are others who say, no, actually, we've got to stick to our guns. We need to stick to our Presbyterian agenda that we want the king to agree to. We need to get him to swear the solemn league and covenant, which is an oath that's an embodiment of that. And if he doesn't do that, no dice. So that leads to their negotiations with the king breaking off. 
Although, to add to your complication for your listeners, they get re-engaged whilst he's a prisoner on the Isle of Wight with a faction of the Covenant who want to re-engage with the King. In terms of Parliament and the army, we've got complications as well because the army has in many ways been radicalised by the experience of fighting in the civil wars. There's extraordinary things that are happening in terms of rank-and-file soldiers. So in the post-Civil War era, we have got soldiers who are being appointed as representatives to speak for the rank and file soldiers at army councils, so-called agitators. And these agitators are actually articulating a lot of really far-reaching changes. They're partly being influenced by civilian radicals who we later know as the levellers who are arguing for things like democratic rights, so for all men, adult males, to have the vote. They're arguing for a complete change for the constitution, um, to have a real change in the setup of England's ancient constitution with a much more representative House of Commons. And for things that we would now understand as civil rights, and again religion is really important here because many of these People are also very much in the radical Puritan wing. They're people who believe in the complete separation from the Church of England, maybe even disestablishment of the Church of England, doing away with the national church. And they want religious toleration to protect them from persecution from the state. So liberty of conscience becomes a real rallying point. They also want, and this is important in terms of the king's position in the constitution, to be indemnified for their actions in the civil war. So they don't want their actions in the Civil War to be at the mercy of the king later coming back and saying, you know what, actually, guys, I want to hold you to account for the things that you did in opposition to me during the 1640s. So they want an indemnity that the king can't break, which involves constitutional changes. On the other side, we've got parliamentarians, often associated with a Presbyterian religious outlook, who are getting increasingly worried by what is being said in the army, by the radicalism of the army in political and religious terms, and also with what some of those members of the army are saying about the king. Because for some of them, it's not enough that the king's powers are going to be reduced. They hold the king personally responsible for the bloodshed in the civil wars and the deaths of their comrades, and they want him brought to account. And this is also a religious thing too. They see him as a man of blood, as this Old Testament biblical figure who has shed blood and who has sinned in the face of God, who has to be punished, and punished really by losing his life. The shedding of his blood is what is needed to assuage God's wrath against the nation. These parliamentarians are now getting very worried about all of these kinds of noises. They want to negotiate with the king separately. They want to expand the army and weaken it as a political force. So there's a lot of tension developing between the army and the parliament, as well as tensions within the factions there. So it's a very complicated picture. And in amongst all of this, we've still got the royalists, even though they're defeated, who are still significant, particularly in the intelligence side. Because what is also happening is that though the king is a prisoner, he's not shut off completely. He's still receiving intelligence. He's receiving intelligence, in fact, even from prisoners in the tower. So one of the significant people who's passing on intelligence is a royalist prisoner, Sir Lewis Dive, who is also in prison with one of these levellers, John Lilburn. And Lilburn is hearing news about what's going on in the army debates. He's hearing stuff about people demanding the vote, but he's also hearing stuff about people saying, you know what, Charles needs to be done away with. And he's passing that on to Dive. And Dive is then passing that on through intelligences to the king in captivity, leading the king to say, well, I need to get out of this situation. Certainly I don't need to be in the custody of the army 
because they're a real threat to him personally. And so that inspires a lot of these escape attempts that we see over the course of 1647, 1648, in the period leading up to the king's trial and execution. So there's a role here for the passing of intelligence, people who are basically working to gather this kind of information. In situations where these debates are often not public, they're being held in private, and there's a need to be able to gather this kind of secret information successfully and accurately. And this is where women have a really powerful role to play. And this is something Nadine Ackerman in her book, Invisible Agents, has really kind of made a really strong argument for. It's actually as a result of the gender biases at the time and the assumptions about women's roles that they are seen as not expected to have political roles. They're not expected to be public figures in the way that men are. And that means they can almost have an invisibility cloak, if you like, where people aren't looking at them First of all, and saying this person might be doing something politically subversive. They're not necessarily expecting that from women. And of course, even when the king is in captivity, he's still getting his laundry done. He's still being dressed. He's still being looked after like a king. So all of those household servants are still at work and still providing routes for information to be passed back and forth between him and other royalist figures. So women have got this sort of great role where because of these different non-political roles and also ignored roles as just people who do the laundry they can pass in ways that men can't in fact i think one of the interesting little snippets that ackerman has in her books is that they're so good at these roles that even some of the male spies start dressing up as women as a, as a way of saying well you know nobody's going to notice me i'm dressed up as a washerwoman i'll sneak in with my secret letters and the rest of it Flying under the radar as they are, they use that to their advantage. Yeah, it's really interesting because they talk about letter locking and and how oftentimes the hidden message was underneath a letter just about, you know, it was a lovely day today and I did this and I did yeah. Yeah, really mundane things. So if anyone was to read it, it was like, oh, here's a woman talking about female things again. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. So in this environment, Jane Horwood, what you were making me think about was motivations. I mean, you've got extremists who are religiously motivated and we are talking about a world, like you said at the beginning, which is about where you end up. This is way bigger than what's happening right here in this world because it's about not going to hell and being damned forever and the rest of it. And that's really real to those people at that time. So you have to kind of put yourself in that world. But also in amongst that, you're talking about regicide, you're talking about within that there will be people that think, well, hold on a minute, even if that isn't necessarily my religious belief, that can't be right. I was just sitting there thinking, what were their motivations? So you had you mentioned two people that were talking who yeah. were in prison themselves. Is their motivation, is it self-motivation? Are they thinking ahead and thinking that maybe that it would be useful if they've helped the king at this point because he's yeah. going to get back on the throne? Or yeah. is it really just that they're like, hold on a minute, this isn't right? You know, And I'm sure that I'm oversimplifying again because there's many things at many times, but that in itself is interesting to me, how people react in these kind of scenarios and yeah. what they decide to do in that moment yeah well i think you've summed it up really well in that it is really complicated in terms of people's individual motivations they might be religiously motivated that's a big driver in where people fall in terms of their loyalty it does tend to be the case that those that are broadly speaking puritans end up on the parliamentarian side whilst those that are on the more kind of conformist side not necessarily catholics but they believe that the church of england is good as it is fall onto the king's side but then there's also, you know, variations within that. There are Puritan royalists and there are conformist parliamentarians as well. Because for some people, what's really important is actually the sense of personal allegiance, that they have a personal allegiance to the king, which can't be broken. This is sacred as well. 
and they have to follow that through. Even if they have misgivings about other things, like the king's religious policies, they've got to follow it through. At the same time, as you said, there are people who are in it for themselves, who see an, an opportunity. And it's not always just, if you like, into rank self-interest. If we're thinking about women, this is an opportunity to exert power and influence in a world which says you don't. Your job is to have babies, look after households, look pretty, that's it. So that's the kind of stereotype. This is an opportunity now to do other things, to exert other roles, to exert power, to exert influence. I think the other thing we need to understand about the context, which I didn't really mention, is one of the important practical contexts in the Civil War is that we are no longer in the age of the feudal armed retinues. It's not the case that the nobility can just bring out their armed retinues and this is how war is conducted. But we're not either in the age of we are now with kind of national armies. Charles I doesn't have a permanent army that he can call upon. So both sides, they have to mobilise opinion. And they're mobilising women as well as men. It's not just about getting the men into the army and so on. It is about mobilising support generally because they need money for these armies. So they need to get women contributing their wealth to this cause as well. They need women to be advocating in their communities so effectively join up. We know probably more familiar with the kind of World War One scenario in which women get involved, but there's a similar kind of thing you could see going on here as well. I talked about radicalising in terms of the army. There is a way in which this mobilising effort also has an effect on women because they're being asked to take a side. They're being courted. They're being encouraged to get involved to a considerable extent. To bring in some of those characters that we want to talk about with someone like Lucy Hay, Countess of Carlisle. So the, the story goes, they never knew completely mm. which side she was on because she flipped so many times. So, yeah. you know, when you said about it attracted certain women to rise to be important in this era mm. because they finally were able to exert some power and actually not apologise for it. This kind of was a case of, well, you need me now. Mm. So, hey, this is how it's going down. In that scenario, it makes me think of Lucy. But with Jane Horwood, it seems that it's perhaps more about duty mm. and what she thought was right or wrong mm. am i right again i'm doing broad strokes but just as a an overall in as to where these two women slotted in yeah i think that's an astute observation i should say i'm not speaking from an in-depth position in terms of lucy hay but when i look at her career i do wonder if actually there is a thread of consistency in terms of her allegiance if you like that you can see particularly if you look at her and her husband together as a unit when they come to prominence in court the Carlyles are kind of aligned with what's known at the time as sort of patriot policy. So people who are kind of arguing for more interventionist line in the Thirty Years' War for England to get actively involved in the fighting. And at this time, that party is also connected to the main royal favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. And that Buckingham has an affair with the Earl of Carlyle's encouragement, basically, with Lucy. Again, it's a way of buying influence, too. So he seems to be relatively OK with his wife having this affair if it increases his influence at court. But there's maybe a line then from that kind of position through to what looks like Lucy's parliamentarianism in the early 1640s, because she's aligning herself with those MPs, with the five that Charles I wants to season in prison, so people like John Pym and Denzel Hollis. But these people, by the time we get to 1649, Pym is already dead, but then they're no longer the kind of 
extreme, <laughs> there very much would be kind of more towards the moderate end of the parliamentarian side, that side that wanted to make the church more Protestant again, bring the king to a negotiated position, change his advisers, but not overturn all of the political and religious status quo. And so the fact that Lucy, by the later 1640s, is now colluding with royalists is maybe not a side change so much as things have changed around her. And she's now moving into more of the orbit that fits with that more moderate, I want a more Protestant Church of England, but I'm not a raving Puritan radical point of view. And also for herself in terms of her class, I think it must also have been a great concern. This social threat that's starting to emerge from these more radical elements in the army where it seems to be, oh, you know, we want to level things. We want to get rid of this social and political hierarchy. That must have been very alarming as well i think with jane i think it's it's always hard to tell with personal motivations but she places herself at such risk that i think it very much is about a really strong sense of personal duty to the king her parents were both sort of raw servants and i think it may come through that route i also wonder and this is enormous projecting and maybe we'll come on to this as story whether she has such a terrible relationship with her husband he's such an abusive bastard but you know let's just out there that's prime forward is a terrible terrible man i wonder if the king becomes the kind of idealized husband that she would want and you know from what we know about their relationship as it develops it, you know we thought it was platonic and perhaps it wasn't maybe there's something there as well that he is the husband she would have wanted and the person who kind of fulfills that masculine role in a way that brome obviously doesn't that is me massively projecting, by the way. But I'm just That's okay, that I find it fascinating. And as long as we put that caveat in, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Also, it's really interesting because now, again, I'm going back to Lucy and what you were saying about the fact that, obviously, she was used as a tool of manipulation yeah. from the get-go yes. as a, a woman that looked a certain way and was able to hold court. So they say she walked in a room, you noticed, mm. and she's had poetry written about her and she was a bit of a muse for people. That's the traditional way a woman would notice that kind of power and manipulate it. But also the men in her life used her to manipulate. Yes. So yes. then... A point where she's given a little bit more of that autonomy because of what's going on she's there she's using it but mm. that's also the world she's known it's pure conjecture but at the same time it's just parts of the pieces of the puzzle isn't it and i yeah. think that where they were coming from and what their backgrounds were all play a massive part in that and, and we haven't mentioned two words yet oliver and cromwell where is he in this landscape I mean, he is an important presence, but he's also a slightly shadowy one in that at this point in the late 1640s, he's not the commander in chief of the parliamentarian army, although his kind of star has risen dramatically during the Civil War because of the victories that he achieves on the battlefield as a cavalry officer. But he's not the number one guy on the parliamentarian side, but he's an increasingly important guy. Uh, His position is one that's murky as well because it's known that he is somebody who supports more radical um, puritans he's definitely a believer in broad religious toleration protects people within his own forces who are at threat of being persecuted for their very heterodox religious beliefs so for example soldiers who set themselves up as lay preachers which is you know extraordinary and very transgressive the clergy is meant to be the preserve of people who've gone to oxford and cambridge and are ordained ministers he's protecting people who are basically saying i'm inspired by the word of god and i want to become a preacher 
He's protecting them, even though their opinions may be really very radical in religious terms. And he's aligned with this war party in Parliament, this, this party that wants to pursue a more aggressive military policy. But at the same time, he's also somebody who's trying to balance things out in the army. He's trying to push back against these agitators and these people who want more radical political change and say, you know, hold on, we don't need to go this far and certainly we don't need to be putting the king on trial. We need to think about what we mean by these terms like blood guilt and sort of encouraging people to go back to their Bibles and say, well, actually, it's symbolic. It's not really literal. You don't, you know, interpret it in in these ways. So he's kind of a difficult one to pin down because certainly in 1647, he's almost, if we just look at what was on paper for Charles in terms of negotiating terms, what the army leadership are offering him is actually a lot better deal than what Parliament are offering. But the King's problem is that he knows what's bubbling underneath the surface with the army. He knows that the grandees are trying to struggle to contain these more radical forces. To complicate things even further for your listeners, what also happens in is a real step change for Cromwell is that Charles decides to re-enter those negotiations with that fragment of the Scottish Covenanters that I was talking about, and basically see if he can win everything back by force. Start another civil war. This breaks out in 1648. It's, again, uh, a defeat for the royalists, a crushing defeat. And for Cromwell in particular, I think this is a real game-changer. Prior to that, he's sort of like, well, no, let's kind of negotiate with the king. It's really important to have him within the picture and all the rest of it. After the Second Civil War, for Cromwell, for whom... God's will is paramount. Charles is a man who's defied God's providence. First Civil War, he said, Charles, I'm not on your side, I'm on Parliament's side. The king has ignored that judgment from God and tried to defy God's providence by fighting a second civil war. Oliver is like, that's that. God has witnessed against you. He says he is a man against whom the Lord has witnessed. And this means that you know providence has mapped out a plan now. For the king to face justice. Cromwell is always very careful about not stating that explicitly, but I think it's evident that he sees God's plan really shifting for the king. The king has ignored God's judgment. He's fought a second civil war. He's now really pushed the army towards bringing him to justice and to putting him on trial and paying for his responsibility as the army sees it for all of that bloodshed in the civil wars. Going back to Jane, maybe, let's Mm. talk about Jane. You did mention, ultimately, the royalists do have a stake in it when it comes to land and their way of life. And and obviously, that's something, again, when we talk about the civil war, is an oversimplification, maybe, but it's it's a way to see the sides Mm. and what the stakes were, maybe. But Jane's not particularly had a very nice time of it up until this point, maybe. You want to just lead us into a bit more about Jane or what you know about Jane in the context of how she's helping the king? I mean, as I said, she's the daughter of royal servants, so she has a connection at court in the same way that Lucy Hay does, but in a very different and less elevated sense. So with Lucy, it's all public world. Lucy is basically in the French model of the aristocratic woman holding the salons and, you know, captivating people with her beauty and her charm. Jane is somewhere in the background, making things work. She has, as I said, this dreadful marriage to her husband, Graham Hallwood, who's terribly abusive. And it's quite murky kind of career during the 1640s, but what we can tell is that she becomes heavily involved in smuggling for the royalist side. So she's basically getting out of the country kind of precious jewels and gold plate and silver plate to finance the royalist war effort. 
So she's playing a really active role in supporting the royalist cause. In many ways, a much more risky and direct way of getting involved than Lucy's information gathering work that she is doing, whichever side, you know, we're not sure about at which particular moment. With Jane, it always seems to be consistent. It's that consistently she's working on the royalist side. But then she seems to move more into this role of being more in direct contact with the king and acting as a go-between as the king in that post-Civil War period becomes an effective prisoner. And again, it's her role as a court servant which enables her to have that access. Because I think your listeners need to understand that we think about people in prison and we think modern prisons, that's it, you know, there's visiting hours, you're behind a screen, that's it. The early modern prison is not like this. It's a more porous kind of thing. And particularly if you are a noble prisoner, and even more so if you are a royal prisoner, you are not held in that kind of super close confinement. He's still got servants attending him. He's still got people bringing him things. He's still receiving visitors. It's only very late in the piece, as he's really very close to his trial, that Parliament really, really restricts his access. And so he's still able to get messages passed out, things brought to him through messengers like Jane. And we know that there must have been other people doing this. In fact, whole ranks of them probably. There are sort of very important people who are even lower down the social status than Jane, the simple kind of washerwomen, if you like, who are also passing messages back and forth. Jane's most dramatic involvement, and again, it's, it's very risky, is again in trying to help the king escape, most notably from his captivity on the Isle of Wight in Carisbrook Castle. The first attempt that Jane helps facilitate, the plan is that the king will basically slip out of the bars of the window of his rooms that he's in. He'll kind of shimmy down into a garden space and essentially be boosted over the wall by somebody who's waiting for him in the grounds and then flee, get a boat to the continent. That first attempt fails in semi-comedic style as the king actually gets stuck between the bars <laughs> and managed to eventually wriggle free, get Sorry. a message out saying, sorry guys, had a bit too much prison food. Yeah, I wasn't able to get through. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's carry a, on, get the king out. Yeah, carry on element. It illustrates the fact that he wasn't starving. He's more like house arrest, isn't it? Or palace arrest. He's not on thin gruel or something. A second attempt is made with assistance from the astrologer, William Lilly, who is also an associate of Jane Horwood. And this is where it's tricky again because Lilly's allegiance are probably more to the parliamentarian side and Lily supplies Jane with basically nitric acid to burn the bars in the cell and also with some special tools which will allow the king to convert his cutlery essentially into a kind of hacksaw. There's all sorts of clever technological stuff going on here as well. Also that attempt fails probably because maybe Lily or maybe somebody else in Horwood Circle who is passing information back to Charles's captors. So both of those escape attempts fail and of course ultimately Charles isn't able to break free from captivity. As we move on later into the year he's transported back to the mainland in late 1648 because the army is increasingly worried about people who are sympathetic to the king on the Isle of Wight, staging further attempts to get him free, brought to the mainland under close guard, then moved to Windsor and then ultimately moved into part of the palace at Westminster 
just before his trial under very, very close guard by that point. And so it's much harder for people like Jane to make further attempts to free him. I didn't know about Lily. That's really fascinating to me. So there you go. There's another character. Have they ever made a film or anything about this episode? Have you ever seen anything? So there's no film specifically about it. We get perhaps fragments of if not Lily, then other kinds of astrologers during the Civil War period in the film A Field in England. It's a very strange film, maybe about five or six years ago, by Ben Wheatley. It's quite experimental. It's a small cast. Reese Shearsmith plays the astrologer character who has been tasked, I believe, if I'm remembering the plot rightly, with finding some sort of chest through astrological means. And he's probably based on a range of Civil War astrologers just to add further complications for your listeners obviously got people looking for signs of god's providence in events but people are also going to astrologers to find out how things are going to pan out people like lily more on the parliamentarian side but there's also royalist equivalents who are casting horoscopes to find out how things are going to pan out for individuals and for the side in general so they're doing all sorts of nice things like reading people's urine like the gillian mckeese of the early (laughs) modern period exactly seeing all sorts of significant wow. things in people's yeah. see but it was closely connected to religion and destiny and yeah. we have to really take a step back and then think about how it was for them and what they believe yeah. but I mean people still do that today Not, I don't know about the urine bit but they definitely consult their horoscopes and oh, yeah. you know it's just that we do yeah. it as a little bit of a light hearted thing rather than a day to day guide but this was really serious stuff wasn't it gosh yeah. well I'm going to definitely watch that experimental it sounds like there's just more questions after watching something like that yeah it's it's quite fun there's a psychedelic band called Teeth of the Seas who did a kind of accompanying psychedelic soundtrack to it I'm not suggesting this to your listeners by the way I'm just saying this is a thing that's happened there have been showings where the soundtrack plays and the film has quite a lot of drug-related content. So they ingest magic mushrooms and see various visions. I believe that viewers today have been watching the film whilst enjoying substances, whilst listening to the music as well. Not that I advocate that for any of your listeners, but I'm just saying that's a thing that's happened. So maybe that is the only way that you're supposed to watch it. (laughs) Not that we advocate it, but definitely more questions than answers. Or or maybe that is the way to find answers. I don't know. We don't know. I'm not an expert, but it sounds um, very intriguing. (laughs) It's funny because when you kept saying the levellers as well, you hear these names and you're like, oh, that's where that band got that name yes. from. And I think there's a lot around the Civil yeah. War, isn't there? Yeah. There's um, New Model Army, and it's where you get your inspiration if you want to form a band. Do you have a band? Not anymore. But no. you did? Yeah, back in the day. Oh, okay. Yes. We didn't have a, a 17th century themed oh. name, though. Yeah. No, it's an opportunity missed. Yeah. What was your band name? Local Girls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It you was very, very confusing for people <laughs> when they were holding out with flyers were being given out it wasn't my cho- it, w- it wasn't my no there w- was one okay one girl. okay um it wasn't my choice of name all right well a podcast for another yeah. time it'll go down a whole nother route there okay so it sounds like there are a lot of women here involved that we will never ever know the names of yes and never really know to the extent yes. that they were working but they were definitely all yeah. helping one yeah. way or another yeah 
or, or getting in the way one way or another. But either way, that's fascinating in itself. I know Nadine Ackerman's doing a lot of research. The book that she's just released, is it Elizabeth yeah, Stewart? Yeah, it is Elizabeth Stewart. Yeah, that's obviously an extension of what she's been researching anyway. Yeah. But it's always harder to find those other women mm. that aren't on the records. Do you think mm. we could ever do that kind of research and find some names there? I think certainly it's a possibility. I think one of the things that's happened over the last 50 years or so now, but particularly over the last 20 or 30 years, is we've just gained a much richer understanding of the roles of women during the Civil War and Revolution. That's not just about evidence, it's actually about changing attitudes of historians as well. I think Nadine Ackerman references this in the book itself, that there's obviously been work on espionage services and intelligence during the Civil Wars before, but it has been written from a presumption that it was all about men. It was men who were doing the work because it's about the world of politics and the world of war. Once we've moved away from those gendered assumptions, I think we've started to see the much wider role that women had. And that's not just in this field of spying and intelligence gathering. It's in a whole other range of things. It's in things like the war effort and the ways in which women were actively engaged in the conflict. Some of them actually actively fighting themselves. It's also in things like the propaganda industry that both sides set up. So women are actively involved in the printing trade as well. It's also in things like religious controversy. So women are not silently following whatever male religious leaders are doing. They're actively going out there and saying, no, this is what I think, this is what I believe, and entering into disputations with male authors as well, helping to set up their own churches. What we're getting is this much richer picture generally of women's lives and women's involvement in a whole range of activities, and that goes right from the top of society to people like Lucy Hay, right down to the poor levels of society as well although it's harder the further we go down the social scale in terms of the evidence that survives there are ways in which we can access information about the lives of those women through things like court records also petitions so women during the civil wars are quite actively involved in petitioning on behalf of their husbands and on behalf of their families for relief and although those might seem very pragmatic texts they involve women telling stories about their family's loyalty and what they've done and being clever about doing that, because they've got to appeal to certain authorities to try and get what they want. And I think that's a big part of the story, is that what it shows us about women's agency and ability to work within this patriarchal world, understand what the limitations are of it, and how they're supposed to behave within it, but then play with that. Somebody like Lucy Hay knows she's supposed to be this coquettish, tempting, alluring figure, but she's using that as well to gain information that she wants, which actually these men who are kind of lusting after her don't really want to give her, but she's going to get it out of them anyway. So she's occupying a kind of accepted aristocratic noble role, but she's using that to gain political influence. You kind of started to talk about it. So do you think there was a shift? Like you say, it was always there, these networks of women and how they Mm. dealt with the cards that they were given. This is a world that was almost uncovered, always existed. If that's the case, if this was a period of time where it was exposed a little bit maybe, or it came to the fore, do you think it had a lasting effect as far as showing that women could do these things? Was there an immediate legacy? And obviously in times of war, the pattern has repeated itself. Would you see that there was anything that lasted after this period or did it revert back straight away? Mm. I don't think it does revert right back. And that's true broadly of change over the 1640s and 1650s, that it has a lasting impact. And women are part of that story of that change over the century. So if you think about things like printed culture, the literary culture 
of the period. Prior to the Civil War, there were women who literate and who wrote, but the idea of a public woman writer is something that emerges during the Civil War and then is cemented in the Restoration period as well. We get figures like Afra Ben, who is also an intelligencer as well, coming to the fore. It develops that role. I won't say it gets sort of accepted and everybody is fine with it, but it, it is the beginnings of that development of women as public writers and authors. I think as well, in the sense of women being political agents... That continues to be part of the political picture. And that is because, as well, we can't move back to the pre-Civil War era of politics, where certainly the, the attempt is to contain politics within the political elite. The Civil War breaks that up totally, and we never go back to that pre-Civil War situation. Instead... All political factions and sides recognise that they need to court public opinion. And public opinion includes women, even though women still are formally excluded from political processes. There's continued attempts to get women to support petitioning activity for particular causes. Women are being asked to swear oaths of loyalty going on into the early 18th century. In fact, the biggest exercise in canvassing women's public loyalty happens in the early Hanoverian period. And the reason for that is that women are getting very actively involved in anti-Hanoverian activity. They're involved in rioting against the Hanoverian succession. And again, that's about women exploiting their position. Because married women are not seen as being legally responsible in the same way as men are, they use that as a cover. And so they get actively involved in the riots and smashing things up. But the authorities are always looking for the male ringleaders instead, because it's the men who must be responsible, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that follows then that they often get let off if, even if they yeah. do as a woman. Yeah. Go home. You mentioned Afro Ben. Are there any other women that, that pop up names that at this point rise to the top and you just think, yeah. You know, I'm thinking, what, what, who are those writers and printers and those people getting stuff out there? There must be some names that you can research. Yeah. I mean, there are people like Catherine Shidley who's very prominent in the leveller movement. I think also women are really important in that leveller movement as well. So you have figures like Mary Overton, who is Richard Overton's wife, but is also integral to actually publishing his works. Women are really important in the printing industry itself. So a lot of these radical works, even if they're not written by women, wouldn't have got out into the public domain without the work of women behind them. So figures like Jane Coe and the Coe Press are really important in terms of in terms of printing during the civil wars. And I think there's still actually work to be done on women in the level of movement. I think there's again women who've perhaps been unfairly consigned to the roles of servants or helpmeets who probably have more agency than that. And if we dig a bit deeper we may find actually there's a lot more that can be said about their roles as well. Jane's relevance today there's a lot about her story that might resonate. I think we should round up with the legacy and the fun questions. Jane's relevance today. There's a lot about her story that might resonate with people today. One of the questions you gave me was about if Jane was a top trumps card, what would be the top score? And I would certainly give her a 9 or 10 for courage particularly in the context of her time, not just for the activities in terms of smuggling and trying to get the king to escape, but just in terms of her personal life. Her marriage to Brahm Hallward was terrible. He was a very violent and abusive man. And unfortunately, that was true for a lot, as it is now, a lot of women in the early modern period. But Jane's extraordinary, I think, in the bravery with which she deals with that situation 
taking this abusive husband to court, basically, you know, getting a legal separation from him, again, dealing with him in court when he contests that, when he tries to avoid basically paying alimony to her. In the context of the time, that's really brave. That's really impressive, inspiring kind of stance that she takes. Especially in context of her upbringing and where yeah. she's come from. Yeah. That's someone yeah. who knows who she is as a human being and yeah. has decided, no, this is how it's going to be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It is very yeah. impressive. Yeah. It also makes me wonder about the relationship between her and Charles. We didn't really get onto the saucy letters but this is, of course, the thing that we've only discovered in the last few decades. So there are cipher letters that are exchanged between Jane and the King. Ciphers are things where we've got codes, where people are referring to each other by code names and code words for different terms and so on. For a long time, the word in this particular letter was mistranscribed, possibly because of the delicate sensibilities of, I think, the Victorian person who did it as introduced. And actually, the word in there is swiving. For those who don't know what swiving is, it's shagging. Yeah, Charles was basically saying, I'd like to give you a good shagging, Jane. Next time you come to my rooms in the Isle of Wight, we're going to do more than talk about files and, and bottles of nitric acid. Uh, And I guess what makes me wonder about this relationship is I can't see Jane, given what we know about the relationship with Brome, or just sort of taking this if she wasn't, in some senses, open to the relationship with Charles. Whether that was consummated or not is another question, but I think there must have been some kind of reciprocating of this even if it's just as a kind of naughty playfulness between them. I mean, we're talking about matters of life and death here. We're yeah. talking about the utmost excitement. They're living life to the fullest. You know, like yeah. you said, she's had a, not a very nice background. She's now become this woman who's decided her own fate. Yeah. And she's, well, it's extremely sexy when you think about it. This is yes, the producer head now. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. this is the film. Yeah. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because in those given scenarios, extremely heightening with all the senses. So I can yeah. imagine in my book, she definitely would. But you know, who knows? <laughs> Maybe they didn't have time. Maybe yeah. she was pushing him out of the bars and she went, no, actually, yes. it's not happening. But there yes. you go. <laughs> I mean, I should also also say to Charles's discredit as Nadine Ackerman also points out in the book he seems to have got a bit fruity with the other women intelligence as well sort of saying things like you and me are different beneath the waist which we're not expecting with Charles this is a side to him that until recently we didn't see because he was there as this kind of chaste martyr king who was for a king unusually faithful to his wife Henrietta Maria but in captivity the coded letters seem to be revealing a slightly more flirtatious king than had previously been seen how interesting and also I think we again because we like to talk in binaries or think in binaries you know you think of Charles II being the one that's the uh, you know yes that 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 type was yes yeah and obviously we all know about that yes the playboy so you kind of think oh no he was more straight laced he was straight you know it was more you know about making a point but the apple maybe doesn't fall that far from the tree. Maybe. Although Charles II, we don't have another episode to talk about that, but that's another great example of the way in which once people cotton on to what a wandering eye Charles has, seeing women as a route to political influence with him and saying, we'll push this pretty woman towards him as a way of gaining access and influence with the king is something that then becomes a feature through Charles II's reign as well. Some of those women are also clearly more than capable of holding their own and exerting their own political influence. Some of those mistresses are definitely not just the puppets of various male courtiers. 
Gosh, no. I mean, Nell Gwynn's just like, you know, she's <laughs> another one that's going to have her own podcast episode, I'm sure. So we've got the top trump, what she's scoring highest for. Mm. What is her least high scoring? Well, that's a tough one. I don't want to unfair about this because we're talking about the beauty standards of the day. I think, you know, Lucy is definitely going to come out higher on the kind of 17th century hotness scale. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucy just seemed to be, in terms of 17th century beauty standards, absolute catnip to male courtiers. Anyone wanted to gain influence, just just shove Lucy in the direction of, of a straight male courtier and they'll instantly kind of melt and do whatever is, is needed. Or, or even a bisexual one, because oh, the well, Duke of yes, Buckingham, yes, yeah. Buckingham yeah. Uh, was, yes, was definitely not exclusively having heterosexual relationships. Jane, on the other hand, support of her is that she's got a pockmarked face, she's unusually tall, which might not be seen as a good thing. She had red hair, which wasn't seen as... Yeah, I'm sorry about that. But in the, uh, we're talking beauty this standards, past be- times beauty here, standards right? of the day. Looked at the paintings of Lucy Hay. I mean, I look at her portrait. I'm not going, wow, but there are different standards. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, when you look at paintings, it removed again because you've got the painter's view of yes. the, the person and they're yes. dressed up in a certain way yes. that it's putting their best foot forward. So, yeah, it's completely removed from yeah. what we might think. Again, another way that perhaps she used a different tack to fly under the radar. Yeah, her supposed plainness was a kind of advantage. She's not going to attract that kind of attention. Although once they get winds of the fact that she might be doing other things, the fact that she's tall, she's got these pot marks, we do get a kind of ID built up for her where you can spot her because of these things. But it's not that instant wow factor, if you like, of like you're going to be dazzled by this, this femme fatale. Okay, in that case, we've also talked a bit maybe about Lucy Hayes' top mark category. What would you say her top mark? Well, I'm going to say charm. Obviously, physical beauty is something that she has as well, but she seems to sustain this ability to kind of charm people throughout her life. So I think she has incredible powers as a conversationalist, as a wit, and that is charming people, bringing people under her influence. Her father was the wizard girl, as they were called him. He was away a lot of the time, and her household was her, her sister and her mother a lot, and that actually gave her an, an upbringing where there was a lot of female autonomy and combined that with the power of being able to turn heads. We're all a mixture of everything that's come before. What do you know about the Ninth Earl of It's Northumberland, right? I guess one thing is that he was also in prison himself, implication in the gunpowder plot so whilst her marriage negotiations are going on he's actually in the tower although he's later released partly as a result of the influence of Lucy's husband although he's initially opposed to the match it turns out you know to his benefit I guess they're already seeing is the way in which Lucy bring her influence to bear to the benefit of, in this case, her father, but then other factions and individuals within the court. Dad's incarcerated. She's pulling all the strings. Yeah. (laughs) And that was just the beginning. I always liked the idea that her father was in prison. There was an overlap with Arbella Stewart as well at Mm. one point. Again, there's another example of incarceration not being that bad because, you know, his son came to join him and was educated there and he had an experiment room in the tower. If you're wealthy enough, you can basically have accommodations that are not exactly like, but like you are accustomed to as a member of the elite. You can have your servants, you can have your pastimes, if that's, you know, experimentation or whatever. Yeah, and his staff would come and go. He would have to stay, yeah. but so he lived for 16 years like yeah. that. So do we have Lucy Hayes at lowest scoring? What was her Achilles heel? I guess it's a flip side of her strengths. There is the problem of if your influence and success is built on your sexual allure in part in a very moral age 
to this is also problematic in some areas. So her relationship with the Queen, Henrietta Maria, is difficult and the influence goes on and goes off because Henrietta Maria isn't very approving of all of this sleeping with people who aren't her husband, flirting and using her feminine charms in that way. Charles's court is a much more kind of chaste court. The court of James I is really one long bacchanal and orgy. Some of the reports of the royal entertainments are totally wild. Prince of Denmark comes to visit and it just turns into a drunken orgy where everyone is vomiting everywhere and, you know, having sex in in, in closets and all the rest of it. So, uh, And then there's a sort of clean-up act when Charles succeeds to the throne. And that does have difficulties then, which are obviously surmounted by Lucy Hay, but it does have that double edge to it, which is always, I think, the case for women in this period where they're using their sexual attraction as a tool to gain influence that they can equally be accused of being whores and that is something that you really don't want at this point in time that sexual insult is not casual it comes with real repercussions and i think again it's one of those stories where once she becomes a widow she becomes even more powerful because Mm. at that point it's not so frowned upon because she can almost to an extent see who she wants and do what she wants because she owns the deeds to everything and she's in the control that's another fascinating chapter for her i think anything else before we sign off we've been talking a lot about how things change for women they change for the population in general and they change in all sorts of spheres in terms of talking a lot about the religious sphere this is a period where the idea of diversity in religious belief really starts to get taken seriously as something that isn't a terrible problem that has to be kind of suppressed but actually maybe a sign of a healthy society is that you tolerate a range of beliefs it's also the first time we get people talking about the fact that everyone when I say everyone, I should qualify that by most of the time saying everyone, they mean men, should have certain basic sets of political and civil rights. It's extraordinary from that perspective. We get to hear the kind of political opinions and religious opinions of the very lowest levels of society in a way that we wouldn't have done in the earlier period. That's really what draws me into it, is that kind of extraordinary period of change and that opportunity to hear those voices including the voices of women that we wouldn't have heard articulated in those earlier periods. I agree. It's making me want to learn a lot more. Thanks, Ted, for being here. With the gamut of conversation from bands to psychedelics <laughs> to Lucy Hay, and, you know, I think this is wonderful. So thank you very much for being our guest. Pleasure.